Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Today on The Argument, where should Americans live? I don't know if you've heard this, but America's running out of affordable places to live. If you've lived in any city for the past five years, this likely isn't news to you. Why? It's a combination of strict zoning policies, changes in demand and supply, and growing inaccessibility for low-income families, among a lot of other factors. I'm Jane Coaston, and I live in Washington, D.C., For the amount of space you get, a city with a growing population, and a cap on how tall buildings can be, rent is preposterous here. But I like living in D.C. And D.C. isn't the only city in the United States where people are sandwiched between unaffordable rent and limited space. So we know we need more housing, but everyone disagrees about what kind of housing, where to put it, and how to do this. Matthew Iglesias, my fellow D.C. resident, thinks we should expand within city parameters, and regulations should allow that to happen. California resident Joel Kotkin has a different proposition. How about the suburbs? But before we look at solutions, we need to talk about what the housing crises are. Yes, crises. As in plural. We started off with Matt. many, many crises. Low-income people struggle to afford housing in every state uh, in the union, um, and that's because their incomes are low, and there are things the federal government can do to support them. Uh, Then you have a problem, which is that some uh, metro areas have become broadly inaccessible, right? And so that's true of California, it's true of Seattle, it's true of New York, it's true of Boston, it's increasingly true of Denver, and that's people being locked out of specific places, right? And that's, you know, they can go somewhere. America is a big country, but I think that there is value, there's social value and economic value to specific places being able to grow when they become more desirable. I think that's important for economic opportunity. It's important for when we think about city services, right? It's important for if a school in my neighborhood gets better. Right. If, if they, the principal puts in hard work, the teaching gets better, people like the school more, people like the neighborhood more. We don't want to say, well, what happens then is it gets more expensive and all the low income families have to leave. You want to say that when places get better, um, they can grow. That's how a capitalist society uh, should function. Yeah, it's interesting. And I want to hear Joel's thoughts because I spent some time in Detroit. And Detroit is an interesting housing conundrum because it is a city with a massive footprint. I think that if you have never been to Detroit, and especially if you live in a city like New York or D.C., which have understandable constraints upon them, Detroit has none of those. Detroit is huge. There is a building boom going on because many people have recognized that, hey, we like being near downtown Detroit. 
we are interested in this city, we are excited about what's going on here, and we want to be within walking, biking, short drive away from the things we like to do. And then the housing prices in Detroit have so far held up that way. It seems to me that with Denver or New York or Washington, this seems to be a basic market issue. You have a city where people would like to live, and then you have as people want to be in that space, housing gets more expensive. So it seems that if you build it, people will come. And if people are already coming, shouldn't you just build it anyway? What do you think, Joel? Well, first of all, uh, let's take a look at, at what people actually want and where they're going. Who would have ever thought that the state of California would lose population? I mean, I've been here since 1971, I've never seen anything quite like it. I think that the demand where people want to live has been changing, and so that will have to be recognized. There is really two basic crises, as I see it. One is the crisis in the inner city with poorer people and very crowded housing. The other one is the uh, what I would call the aspirational crisis, that younger people feel they can't afford to, to buy a house, they can't afford to do the very basic things that, in many cases, their parents did. I mean, when I teach uh, here at uh, Chapman University, which is in Orange County, and most of my students are from middle, upper middle class students, like most private universities. But I ask them, how many of you think you're going to stay in California when you graduate? And out of 35, it might be five. When I went to Berkeley, which of course is in ancient times, you almost never ran into anyone who was going to leave California. So, you know, in other words, the demands are changing. And I want to just add one very big change is this revolution in people working at home. I think that is going to give people more choices. Some of it, they can move to a different part of the country and do their jobs. That's one. But I think the biggest movement seems to be to the suburbs and exurbs of the big metros. So in other words, some of the agglomeration effects that Matt may talk about, they're still there. So, you know, like now I live in Hudson, I don't live in Brooklyn, and I I take the train in once or twice a week instead of going every day. And I think we're going to see some changes that way too. Wouldn't the issue in California, though, be in part, because I know a host of folks who are like, I would love to live in San Francisco, but it's too damn expensive. The last time I was actually there, I was having a conversation on the phone with my husband. I was like, oh, it's beautiful here. You know, you can see the sea. It would be great to live here. And someone walking past said, oh, get a wheelbarrow full of money. Like people are being priced out of living in California, that the regulatory environment due to not building enough housing or having housing being stymied because the apartment building might put a shadow over a park. That seems to be more the issue, not that people don't want to live in the city. I live here. I've been following this for 30, 40 years. So CEQA is the California Environmental Quality Act. If you look at CEQA and if you look at where housing is being stopped, the biggest ones are the environmental groups. It's not even close. This is where I do find myself disagreeing with you, because it, it's true that you you see CEQA regulatory actions that, and that this is an impediment in, in California and, you know, other states to an extent. But it's it's just, like, obvious, like, go on Trulia, right? Like, look at the price of single-family houses in Santa Monica, right, in Malibu, uh, in San Francisco. Like, the price is very high, right? Like, they're, they're not cheap. There is a market demand for additional 
units, and there is often a zoning envelope that makes it impossible to build extra units there. Like, you don't even get to the point of a sequel litigation. Um, There's no ability to build apartment buildings on the land that's most expensive. And then we wind up in this kind of, like, metaphysical conversation about, like, what is there really demand for and, you know, who's to say and, and yada yada. If I mean, if nobody wants to build apartment buildings, like, that's fine. So we could still change the rules and let them do it if they want to. And then we'll, and then we'll see what happens, right? You know, remote work is great. And I think will ameliorate some of the issues that we're dealing with for, I think the reasons you outlined Uh, at the same time, I mean, people like the beach, right? I mean, you're not gonna, you're not gonna zoom uh, to the ocean. I hope, Um, you know, like there are locational amenities in real estate. Like everybody knows that. And you can't completely just wave that away with with technology. The part that you have to maybe look at is one, the housing projects that are not getting built are, you know, it's because the regulatory environment says you have to go someplace where you can access transit and it has to be transit oriented, even though transit is in terrible decline. And, you know, so I think that that some of the policies have made it much, much more expensive. You know, what you really want is you want competition, as Matt suggests, but you you want to have competition between the city and the suburb and the exurb. So I think the question is we have to figure out a way that, that we can expand the housing supply of all different kinds. The social equity issue, I think, is the most complicated because it's also very expensive. But I think that fundamentally what we need to do is we need to look at How do we make a more competitive market in land? There are lots of places, even in the city, we don't have to go into single-family neighborhoods and and blockbust them. It is true. We we don't, quote-unquote, have to, right? We could live a a nice life and we could say, okay, there will never be a new housing unit built on the west side of Los Angeles. People don't, quote-unquote, have to live in the most expensive, most desirable part of the city. But for all the reasons, like, you, when you start talking about aspiration and how sad it is, right, that, like, your students don't think they can be there anymore, like, I think it's sad that I could never in a million years afford to live in the neighborhood that I grew up in, right? I mean, I'm doing well in life, you know? It shouldn't be impossible for me to afford to live there, suddenly you you stop, right? Like you break all of that logic when it comes to the existing single-family neighborhoods. But like we should have aspiration and opportunity there too. And I agree with you. We shouldn't say only there. But also we shouldn't let people who have nice neighborhoods now pull up the ladder behind them. Like these are desirable places for a reason. And if people want to build more housing in them, they should be allowed to do that. Joel, I want to ask you, you mentioned that the social equity issue is complicated because housing is expensive. What do you mean by that? The biggest problem I think we have with our cities is, and L.A. is is at the top of the list here, high housing prices and low salaries. It's a really bad combination. L.A. is not a wealthy city. I mean, there's a lot of wealth here, but it's got a lot of poverty. It may be by cost justification by probably the the poorest big city of the top 10 cities in the country. So it's bifurcated. 
and but the housing's still expensive. Um, so that is what creates this problem. So the question is, you got to attack it on two ends: one on the housing end, and one on the um, on the jobs end. We have to figure out how to bring middle class and reliable incomes into these communities. That actually gets to something I wanted to talk to Matt about because Matt and I we live in the same city, and we have both experienced the fact that in D.C. a lot of times upzoning, the act of changing zoning to allow for dense use from industrial to residential in D.C. and New York and a lot of other cities, that means luxury high-rises. It does not necessarily mean like, ah, the place where person who's working at the P Street Whole Foods um, can afford to buy a home near the P Street Whole Foods. It means there is an apartment building around the corner from the P Street Whole Foods where one bedroom is like $2,600 a month, but there is a waterfall on the roof um, and a piano lounge <laughs> that no one uses. Like, how can we avoid this? If we're trying to provide more housing for cities, how do we avoid that bifurcated effect that I think that anyone who has lived in a city recently knows about? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's two things, right? I mean, one is that new-built construction is typically not going to be the most affordable option. The, the most affordable housing will probably be the previous generation's new-built housing that is now sort of available on a, on a secondary market. So you have a, a complicated supply mix. But you do have to look at the regulatory environment for the new high-rise buildings, right? So something you have in, 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 in Washington in particular is that when you go above about uh, seven or eight stories, you have to start using expensive construction methods, you know, so the building doesn't fall down. Yeah, steel. But then you but then you're capped out at about 10 stories. Because of DC's right? height and limits. Can, <laughs> right. And so, you know, even in a in a suburban market, right, in uh, Northern Virginia, you know, you amortize the cost uh, a little bit and you have a little bit more affordability. Uh, we also have a lot of rules, though, that discourage adding more units into the footprint, right? You have to triple the amount of parking, things like that. So you get a lot of investment in these amenities that are not even particularly valued, I think, by the residents. But mostly, I think that it's a story about an unbalanced uh, housing market growth, right? That, you know, if you only allow construction in a very constrained envelope, you are going to try to serve the highest income customers. And any business is like that, right? I mean, if a Podcasts could only have like one listener, right? You would want it to be Bill Gates or something like that, right? It's that you're able to grow, so you want to serve a mass market. Uh, where you are able to build with relatively little constraint, you start building housing for middle-class people. When you're only able to build a small amount of housing, you target the highest-income people, you put in the highest-end finishes, and that's something that we see in tons of markets across the country, it's not great. Just to you know, maybe illustrate a little bit on Matt's point, one of the things you have in what you would call world cities, I mean, you, you know, sort of the the most internationally desirable places, um, you know, West LA would be one, San Francisco would be one, Manhattan would be one. And this is something we've been looking at here in California. We've got about a million unoccupied units in the state of California. People building housing that for which there is no market. You also have a lot of housing that's owned by people from overseas or by people with multiple residences. I mean, um, I think that's been a huge factor in New York. You know, that other words, 
when we are building housing, particularly dense housing, but it's also true in some of the nicer suburbs, all we're building is more expensive housing for, for the person who in many cases has two or three places. So, you know, what we have to figure out is, is there anything we want to do to constrain the flows of capital, uh, both domestic and foreign, that go into the speculative um, housing market and drive the prices up? I, you know, I'm not, I don't have the answer, but I think it's certainly part of the problem. I think the most important thing is that we want to look at regulating the financial capital rather than the physical capital, right? What we tend to do right now is have incredibly tight uh, restrictions on, on what you can do, right? But then we have complete openness to international flows of financial capital, um, which creates a, a distorting lens. I also do not have a great solution for the kind of like vacation town phenomenon, but it's something it's something that states that have those communities in them, I think ought to be thinking harder about because this is a situation where remote work is going to exacerbate the problem, right? I mean, if it used to be, you know, you're rich and so you could afford two houses, but you've also like, you've got to be on Wall Street all day. But now, you know, if you can go skiing for a month, and and zoom in from Vail, and then you can be at the beach another month, and you can be wherever else. I mean, people who have the means are, I think, going to want to acquire more houses than they've had in the past. It's like a tax policy question and, you know, financial regulation. How do we want to sort of address inequality writ large? But it's better to have too much investment than have too little. Like Jane was talking about Detroit, and there are, there are much worse situations you can find yourself in than Park City. Uh, but you do want to manage those investment inflows in a way that benefits people instead of just displacing them. Joel, I want to talk about single-family zoning and the single-family housing issue writ large. The state of Oregon, smaller cities like Berkeley and Minneapolis have banned single-family zoning. They've said they want to create more affordable housing and lessen segregation. You are pro-single-family zoning. Can you tell me what are the complications that you see of banning single-family zoning? The important thing about single-family areas, um, particularly if they're affordable, is that's where people have kids. And we we are headed into a real demographic issue in terms of our very low birth rate. I think that single family, particularly owned areas, have all sorts of positives in terms of school, in terms of of crime, in terms of family. So those are important as well. And I really want to make this point particularly. We looked at where the increase in suburban living came from in the last uh, decade. 4% of it was non-Hispanic white. 96% was other. Half of it was Hispanic. The, the old idea, which, you know, some people say, well, the suburbs and single-family neighborhoods are racist. Well, if they're racist, there are an awful lot of African-American, Hispanic, and Asian racists out there. So I think that the, these are universal aspirations. They're not white aspirations. They're, they're aspirations that all sorts of people um, have. This is very important to the stability of the country. I also want to make another sort of weirdly social democratic argument, which is, I'm very much in favor of the dispersion of ownership. What scares the living daylights out of me is having Blackstone and the other big financial companies going in, buying up all the single-family homes that people can't afford, and then turning them into renters. And therefore, you you have no middle class left. Everybody is essentially a serf of the... uh, of the oligarchs. I feel like there's sometimes a confused conversation here, right? And one is to say, um, 
well, should people be like allowed to have single family homes or are single family homes good or desirable in some abstract sense? And I think, yeah, I mean, obviously, right. I mean, all else being equal, like you would want your house to be bigger. Um, you would want a bigger yard. You would want a pool in the yard. Uh, I've got a six-year-old. He would want a giant pool in the yard and also a playground. Um, but you also want other things, right? It's like you only have so much money. You care about, you know, your commute. You care about, like, the beach. You care about what is in your neighborhood. You care about different things. And there's a balancing of considerations. But then what you want to do to create affordability in general is allow for more construction. A lot of that additional construction will be single-family homes because that's what people want. And a lot of it will not be single-family homes because where land is expensive, it's better to use the land more intensely. But what you want is to have housing be less crowded for everybody, for everyone to be able to afford more space and to make trade-offs between locational amenities and space and things like that up to people rather than us kind of sitting around and saying, aha, here's how it's got to be, there's how it's got to be. But what Joel started to say about, like, crime and stuff like that, I mean, I I think that that drives a lot of dysfunctional decision-making. The idea not that, like, I would like to have a single-family home, so I'm going to pay for one, but that I insist that there be only single-family homes in my neighborhood. I think that that's a very um, destructive impulse to say, not that I'm going to take control of my own space, but that I'm going to try to take control of all the space that's all around me, right? But that's actually, that that's not reality. The reality is, you know, there are some neighborhoods like that, but like in any place that's remotely urban, you know, I could, I go to a townhouse apartment five minutes on my bicycle from where I live right now. I just don't want my neighbor to put a eight unit apartment building on his plot. The moment that happens, I go to the real estate agent, I sell and I'm gone. There are lots of ways of, of doing it. But the importance is if you buy a single family home, you want to have at least some idea that perhaps it will remain that way. The question is, how do we find a a good medium solution that allows for some of the things Matt's talking about, but also protects these, these neighborhoods that people have invested their lives in and they want to live for 20 or 30 years in, in that neighborhood? And, and, and balancing that, I think, is going to be a real challenge. So I, I just want to note as as my last thought here, I, I feel like Joel keeps wanting me to call him a racist and then he can debunk that. But I but I'm not doing that. I'm not I'm not saying that. I want us to say yes to to things, to change, to shifting circumstances, and to, you know, the inherent uncertainties of life. Uh neighbors do stuff and you know it's it's up to them it's a it's it's a free society it's a it's a free world and i think that you know all kinds of people would benefit ultimately from a more flexible market in land and real estate and that's not to say like yes just like your block or mine or jane's but like everybody's block all across america we can let people do more stuff Matt, I want to ask you, if you got to control housing policy right now, what would you do? Let's say we made a series of very confusing decisions that put you in charge of housing policy. What do you do? You know, I mean, I I think that what you need to see is state governments probably taking more responsibility for land use and doing less, pushing it down to a kind of hyper-local level. Um, and then I want to take 
uh, policy basically just in a less prescriptive direction. You know, we can develop these kind of rooting interests and say, like, there's amazing stuff happening in, like, 15-minute exurban communities. And, like, that's true. And, like, our city is good or bad. Like, I don't know. You know, I mean, I, I know where, where I like to live. But what we need to have is a change so that you can build more units in more places. Uh, you know, of course, you got to have rules about safety. You've got to have rules about, like, bona fide protection of parks. Like, we shouldn't just have houses all over the Grand Canyon or something like that. Um, but there's an incredible amount of pretextual environmental litigation. Um, there's an incredible amount of just arbitrary exclusion and prescriptivism about what it is that you're allowed to build where. And, you know, Americans, I think, you know, know that, like, you can't you can't do everything with a totally unregulated market. But then when you have consumer products, if you don't let people create them, if you don't let people put things onto the market, that you're going to get shortages, you're going to get scarcity. We can't get rid of the mountains. We can't get rid of the oceans. We shouldn't get rid of our parks. Uh, you know, we can't just uh, magically make everybody like want to live in the middle of North Dakota. So, you know, we have to work with in the development envelope that we have as well as outside of it. Joel, what would you do if you were in charge of housing policy? I would say, first of all, um, I, I would not want there to be a national housing person because the country is too diverse, too many different circumstances. Something that might make sense in Seattle does, doesn't necessarily make sense in Fort Worth. So I'll, I'll, I'll probably turn the job down. But I, I do think that there are some things that we could do. I think we, we do need more flexibility. I think we need to take advantage of the work-at-home phenomena. We need to take advantage of the real uh, overbuilding of retail and office and find the, the places there to build housing. I mean, one of the things I'd like to see here in California, for instance, is a incentive for cities who have been retail focused to say, we will give you an incentive if you build housing. But I do think that that the more that cities restrict new development and metros restrict that development, it's going to lead for people and businesses to go elsewhere, which is exactly what's happening now. Well, again, I still say, let's let six-year-olds control housing policy. A lot more pools and playgrounds, <laughs> way fewer kitchens, probably. Joel, Matt, this has been very informative. So thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Matthew Iglesias is a journalist and writer focused on the American economy and politics. He publishes his thoughts on his newsletter, Slow Boring, and is the author of One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger. Joel Kotkin is the Roger Hobbs Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University. He's the author of several books, his latest titled The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class. Hey, this is Matthew from Atlanta, Georgia. Something that always seems to come up at the dinner table is trying to decide how we should run our elections. We understand that an electoral college has certain discrepancies that make it not work out, but we also see the problems with the popular vote, right? You don't want the coast running the middle of the country. And so what is the alternative? If the electoral college doesn't work and the popular vote doesn't work, what do we do? What are you arguing about? With your family? Your friends? Your frenemies? Tell me about the big debate you're having in a voicemail by calling 347-915-4324. 
and we might play an excerpt of it on a future episode. As a global leader in experiential education, Drexel University encourages students to both gain knowledge and find new ways to turn that knowledge into action. Drexel is proud to be one of 39 private institutions in the nation to achieve recognition by the Carnegie Classification of Institutions of Higher Education as an R1 research institution, affirming this Philadelphia University's commitment to discovery and innovation. Experience what education can be at drexel.edu. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. As I was thinking about housing and what goes wrong and what could go right, I knew I wanted to check in with my fellow opinion columnist, Jamel Bowie, who is deeply immersed in his local zoning debates. Hello? Hey, Jamel, it's Jane. Oh, hi, Jane. So I just finished a debate over nimbyism and yimbyism and housing with Matthew Iglesias and Joel Kotkin, and it made me want to think about the view from on the ground, somewhere relatively local. And since you happen to live in the great state of Virginia and in the great city of Charlottesville, longtime listeners might remember that you have risen to immense power (laughs) as a member of the Charlottesville Parking Advisory Panel. How is that going? So it's funny you ask that because initially a lot of our business was regarding a proposed parking garage that several of us thought was a bad idea and several other members thought was a good idea. Because we're an advisory panel, really the most we can do is recommend to city staff whether or not we think it should be built. But because uh, we were basically gridlocked on this, um, that recommendation never came and city council ended up nixing the plan as it was. And so with that off the agenda, we don't really do much anymore. (laughs) So I feel like This is sort of about parking, but this is in some ways actually about housing. Back in August, you tweeted that Charlottesville is incredibly pro-housing as long as that housing is temporary storage for cars. Is this part of Charlottesville's own flavor of a housing crisis? Because I feel as if this back and forth over parking garages seems to be in part about whether or not Charlottesville should be more for people to live in or more for people to park in and then leave. Right. I mean, sort of the backdrop to all of this is the city is kind of persistent housing crisis. Housing in Charlottesville has always been expensive. That's in large part, I think, because of a history of exclusionary zoning and restrictive covenants and down zoning. Over the years, this has really lowered the supply of housing in the city, and this has just become way more acute in the last couple of years as it's been in a lot of cities, large and small across the country. And the arguments over parking are very much part of a larger argument about who the city is actually for. Is it for commuters who come in here to work? Is it for people in the county who come in here to shop? Or should we be looking for ways to make the city more 
people friendly, which is going to necessarily mean less friendly to cars and private vehicles. We see this in D.C. as well. I think Matthew Iglesias has talked about this in D.C., but there's a lot of like, oh, you know, if you put in this giant new building, it'll ruin the character of all these old homes. Is that similar to what's happening in Charlottesville, where there's a lot of talk about, quote unquote, kind of neighborhood character and how if you put in affordable housing or multifamily homes, I don't know, everyone will go to hell or something? It's a very similar tenor of conversation, especially among the most affluent homeowners in the city who live in these somewhat secluded areas. And you know, the funny thing is that when we talk about multifamily housing, we're not actually talking about big apartment buildings or anything. Mm-hmm. We're talking about three, four, five, six unit homes, which depending on how they're designed, could look indistinguishable from existing structures. So I think here, what's interesting is that the opposition to legalizing the construction of more multifamily housing across the city, the opposition kind of depends on creating this almost false image of what would happen. You know, they're going to build gigantic, towering buildings. There are a few of us who are kind of on the the pro-housing advocacy side of things, who have been going around the city taking pictures of existing multifamily structures, specifically to be able to show people, this is what this looks like. This is what it looks like to have a four-unit home in your neighborhood. And it looks pretty much like any other big house. Are the people who are opposing these multifamily homes, are they also opposing parking garages? That's the funny thing. The parking garage stuff, it's fewer people involved in the argument. It's like a clique of downtown business owners and city staffers who really want a new parking garage for whatever reason. In this case, I'm the busybody. Like in this case, those of us who oppose the garage are the busybodies. Right. But it is funny that there's, you know, the same people who insist that building multifamily homes in their segregated neighborhoods would be either destroying the character of the neighborhood or somehow counterproductive for housing affordability, have really nothing to say about parking garage that would destroy two existing businesses and kind of change the landscape in a pretty desirable part of the city for the next 30, 40, 50 years, right? Yeah. These things last for the duration. Jamel, if you if your rise to power goes even higher, and if you were to become the housing czar of Charlottesville, a thing that I have just invented, what is your ideal solution that would satisfy the feuding factions of Charlottesville zoning debates? Well, I don't know if there's a single solution that will satisfy everyone. You know, there are certainly places where you can find compromise, but in terms of sort of the faction of Charlottesvillians, who, judging from public comment, These are some of the wealthiest people in the city. I actually know for a fact that the people who are at the head of it own some of the most expensive homes in Charlottesville. And so for them, right, I don't think there's a solution that will satisfy them because I think the thing they want to preserve is exclusivity. You know, if I could declare things by fiat, it would be basically that everywhere in this city, it is legal by right to build up to five, six-unit homes with density bonuses attached for deeper affordability. And so if you want to build a 10-unit home, then the additional four units have to be you know, subsidized affordable or something. I'm sure there are problems with this and there are things to consider, but the, the basic idea is that 
Charlottesville can't annex land from the county. The only direction it can grow is up, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have to grow that tall. Multifamily housing across the city, subsidized in market rate, is my vision with commercial uses legalized in, in every neighborhood so people can walk to stores. I, I think like a lot of you know urbanist-minded people, I'm very enamored by the idea, the 15-minute city where everything you need is within a 15-minute walk or bike ride from where you live. And Charlottesville is small enough to make that, I think, very feasible. Those of us who are fortunate enough to be able to afford to buy homes here can do exactly that already. Thank you for chatting with me today. Thank you for uh, giving me a call. All right. Talk soon. Bye. If you want to learn more about America's housing crises, I recommend Building Housing, Lots of It, Will Lay the Foundation for a New Future by Matt Iglesias and Vox.com, published in September 2020. For the other side, you can read In Defense of Houses by Joel Kotkin, published in City Journal in July 2019. And listen to an episode of The Ezra Klein Show with Vox policy reporter Jerusalem Demsis, titled How Blue Cities Became So Outrageously Unaffordable. You can find links to all of these in our episode notes. The Argument is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Phoebe Lett, Elisa Gutierrez, and Vishaka Durba. Edited by Sarah Geis. With original music and sound design by Isaac Jones. Additional engineering by Carol Sabarau, and additional mixing by Sonia Herrero. Fact-checking by Andrea lopez Cruzado and Kate Sinclair. And audience strategy by Shannon Busta. Special thanks this week to Kristen Lynn.